Welcome to Mothering Earth, your source for sustainable living news. I'm Salwa Khan. Floods are a serious problem all over the world. In the United States, flooding is the most common and often the most costly natural disaster. Floods result in loss of life and can cause massive destruction to houses, roads, schools, and other man-made structures. Floods can also do serious damage to trees, plants, wildlife, and to the land itself. Bad land management practices magnify the effects of floods. These include adding more and more impermeable surfaces, such as roads, parking lots, and other types of construction. It also includes destruction of natural areas, such as forests, parklands, and perhaps even the land in your own yard. One important factor is the way we think about rainfall as something to get rid of rather than something we should conserve and hold in the soil. Expanding the water holding capacity of our soil is one way to prevent flooding. What can you do about all this? Our program today provides practical steps you can take, whether you live near a river, stream, or other body of water, or whether you live in an upland area away from water. My guest is Ryan McGillicuddy, a conservation biologist at Texas Parks and Wildlife. One thing he does is work with people who want to learn about ways to mitigate flooding on their land. I began by asking him about common land management practices that are harmful and that amplify the effects of flooding. As far as you know, floods are concerned, in in um, you know how they become exacerbated on the landscape. Um, I tend to think of things uh, in terms of you know water shedding landscapes versus water catching landscapes. So, and by that I mean you know water that is able to um, in, allow water to infiltrate into the soil column. Uh, instead of having it just hit and run off, because that's what water does. When it falls from the sky, it's going to do one of two things. It's going to soak into the ground, or it's going to run off somewhere. And so when we think about um, flooding, we have to think about things kind of from the top down, you know, from the headwaters, from the uplands, then down to the river column, because that's where land management practices are going to affect how quickly water runs off into the water column, into the water, uh, uh, into into our rivers and our streams and our creeks. Um, so, you know, land management practices that can exacerbate the effects of flooding, uh, that can cause water to run off more quickly. You know, the most common that we think of in urban areas are something like impervious cover. So, you get something like a parking lot or a rooftop. Water hits it, it runs off, and so that's one that we're really familiar with. Um, that we've kind of uh, come to know. Um, this concept known as the urban stream syndrome. So, you know, these urban streams that are really affected, um, deepen, widen, they, they lots of erosion, and that's because of the amount of water that's running off so quickly into those streams from urbanization, from impervious cover. And it carries pollutants and things like that with them. Uh, but there's all kinds of other land management practices that can have the same effect. So, you know, overgrazing in certain areas can reduce the, cup, the, uh, the diversity of species, uh, of grass species, um, and create um, landscapes that are less able to uh, allow water to slow down and infiltrate. You know, if there's not as much growth above ground uh, when water hits and it's 
running off, you know, it's not going to slow down and be allowed to infiltrate. So, um, you know, it's not just restricted to, you know, ranching practices, you know, if you have, um, open tillage and things like that on agricultural fields, the water can hit runoff real quick. You don't have that rough material to slow water down. Um, there's all kinds of things like that, um, you know, div- uh, soil compaction in areas. Um, so, and that can be in a more urban lawn, uh, type setting. Um, so all kinds of things, you know, anything that causes water to speed off more quickly off the landscape is going to result in, in, uh, increased flooding. So in terms of people in a suburban setting, let's say, mm-hmm. um, with their, you know, as much as possible flat lawns, those are going to act in somewhat the same way as a parking lot? In, to, yeah, to a varying degree. You know, anything that, uh, that, that causes water to, to speed off the landscape more quickly, um, you know, has these cumulative effects. You know, one person may be increasing the roughage, uh, you know, on their, uh, on their property may not have an impact. Uh, you know, you got to look at these things at kind of these uh, entire watershed scales. Um, but really, in urban areas, it's kind of you know the the stormwater, um, the way stormwater systems are designed to uh, get water to the street and run off quickly to the nearest creek, and then those creeks you know accumulate water and then quickly run off to the river. It's just speeding water as fast as you can to get it off the landscape, and that's that's just a, a product of how uh, of engineering and how you know we've designed to get water away from us when really. Uh, that will exacerbate the effects of flooding at these watershed scales. So, of course, you want water away from you and your foundation and, and not flooding your house locally, but, um, you know, cumulatively, these, uh, these development impacts result in, in flooding down in, on the main stem of these rivers. You're listening to Mothering Earth. My name is Salwa Khan, and my guest today is Ryan McGillicuddy, a conservation biologist with Texas Parks and Wildlife, and we're talking about ways in which people can manage their um, land better to prevent the uh, seriously bad effects of uh, flooding. So um, I'd, ask, I were, I'd like to ask you about um, giving us kind of an overview of what you would say in talking with a person who wants to prevent future floods from destroying their land. Sure. So if I was having a discussion with a streamside landowner um, to really reiterate about what they can do to help create a landscape that can better withstand the effects of flooding. First, I would reiterate that riparian areas themselves, these these bands of vegetation between the, the streams and the uplands, these special ecological zones, they don't themselves prevent the effects of flooding. We've already talked about how some land management practices uh, can exacerbate how floods occur. Uh, well, riparian areas themselves won't necessarily prevent flooding, but what they do is give the land the ability to withstand flood events uh, and recover from them a little bit quicker. And so that's what we know in ecology, a, a term we call um, resiliency. So the ability to bounce back from a disturbance event. Um, so riparian areas, if there's healthy native vegetation on the landscape, if there's a diversity of vegetation on the landscape, um, if there's things like rock and wood to slow water down and allow it to infiltrate into the soil column, um, things like that, uh, having a diversity of age classes, so not just old mature trees, but also young trees um, growing up to replace those older ones, those landscapes are in a better position to recover faster from a flood event. So while they won't necessarily prevent all floods, um, they can recover much, much faster than something uh, that maybe just has uh, bare ground or 
um, you know, one one layer of turf grass and maybe some mature trees. Those are those uh, are not going to be able to withstand a flood um, as adequately as a diverse riparian area. All right. So talk about why we want the water to soak in rather than just running off. Why is that important? Sure. Well, the, the first thing is it helps our neighbors downstream. Um, you know, having intact floodplains that are undeveloped with, um, you know, healthy soils and vegetation, water can spread out onto that floodplain and then seep in. And so that reduces the effects and erosive forces of water downstream. Um, but additionally, when you allow that water to spread out onto the flood th- uh, floodplain and slowly seep in, that recharges and, and, and saturates what we call these shallow alluvial aquifers. So the, uh, the soil right next to the creek or river is capable of storing an incredible amount of water. And when these floods, you know, not your huge 500-year event floods, but these, you know, one to two, mm-hmm. five, ten-year uh, flood events, when they spread out onto the floodplain, uh, that vegetation slows the water down. That water then infiltrates into these shallow alluvial aquifers. And then over time, over a period of days, weeks, months, it makes its way by gravity back towards the riverbed. And so it's actually feeding the base flow of our rivers and adding water, keeping water in our rivers longer throughout the year so that uh, we've, we've get pools that persist longer. We get running water that persists longer. And so we tend to think of these um, intact, healthy, uh, vegetated riparian areas as like time release capsules that are holding on to the water for us through the dry times of the year. And that's good for uh, drinking water, that's good for fish, for wildlife, uh, for everything that depends on water. Talk about the different types of plants and how they, uh, I guess, help prevent or or at least help in holding water so that it doesn't uh, result in a really... uh, terrible fr- flooding. Sure. Uh, you know, vegetation along the stream in, in what we call this riparian area is providing a number of key critical functions. Uh, in a flood event like we're talking about, it's doing a number of things. These native plants have incredibly uh, dense root systems that grow very deep. And so what happens is these roots go very, very deep and it almost is acting like rebar in concrete. The roots in the soil are like rebar and concrete. They're holding it all together. It's giving surface tension, um, you know, and it, it's almost like grappling it. So when you've got a mix of these diverse native plants, their roots are growing much deeper than a lot of our turf grasses or imported grasses that aren't adapted to these riparian areas. Um, so you've got the root systems just holding everything together. And when you've got a diversity of plants, their root systems are interlocking with each other. Mm-hmm. So that's one thing that's going on. But there's also when you get uh, growth uh, above ground, when you get these erosive forces, those uh, long blades of grass and those smaller shrubs and the diversity of plants are folding over almost like a blanket from the top. Hmm. So they're folding over and protecting the soil uh, from the top, just like the roots are protecting it and holding it in the bottom. So there's action going on uh, above and below ground. Something like a spike rush, which is a, a little uh, water-loving uh, small plant that grows by the river's edge. Um, it's got an incredibly dense root system, so much so that when, when uh, people have measured it out and actually counted it, they've uh, counted 22 miles of root in just a cubic foot. So these are, if you imagine that just being bare ground, it's going to wash away a lot easier. But if you got 22 miles of root, in a square foot, it's going to hold on to it a lot better. Um, another way to um, 
to measure that at a smaller scale is that's 67 um, feet of root per square inch. So go home, take take your thinnest fishing line and try to to, to uh, wind up 67 feet of that and wow. fit it to an inch. Yes. It's going to be very difficult to do, but that's what's going on underground. So um, these plants uh, are in- incredibly important to adding stability to the landscape. You're listening to Mothering Earth. I'm Salwa Khan. I'm here today with Ryan McGillicuddy, a conservation biologist with Texas Parks and Wildlife. We're talking about keeping riparian areas healthy, but right now it's time for a break. We're back now. You're listening to Mothering Earth. I'm Salwa Khan, and I'm here today with Ryan McGillicuddy, a conservation biologist with Texas Parks and Wildlife. And uh, we were talking about different ways to prevent floods from doing a lot of damage to land. Um, And you had spoken about uh, plants in particular. So um, one of the particular types of plants that I understand uh, can be very useful in holding, in having long roots and holding, holding soil uh, are grasses um, and sedges. Can you talk about that? Sure. Uh, mostly sedges you're going to find uh, that want to be kind of as close to the river as possible. Let, let's talk, what is a sedge? A sedge is just a, uh, a, a type of plant uh, they tend to have edges. Uh, they they tend to be water loving. Uh, they look like uh, many of your familiar grasses in many ways, but they're just a different type of of plant that likes to be uh, in association with these riparian areas. So they're water loving. Uh, they like to keep their feet wet uh, most of the time. So they're going to be some of the things that if you have a disturbance event where you've maybe had a big flood and lost some soil, uh, and then you allow that land to rest and recover. A lot of times it's going to be some of the first things that pop up along the water's edge are going to be some of these things like spike rush, like I mentioned earlier. Um, That spike rush um, will kind of begin the colonization process. It will get uh, this bare ground. uh, It'll begin to take root and stabilize some of these bare soils. So that's the role that sedges play a lot of times uh, is that they'll begin this healing process right at the water's edge. Now, there's other grasses that like to be right down by that water's edge as well in a mix with those sedges, things like bushy bluestem or switchgrass or eastern gamma grass. Uh, And then the grasses can tolerate a little bit more of drier conditions as you move away from the water's edge. So you'll see a different uh, diversity, a different mix of grasses the farther you'll move away. Mm -hmm. So what we like to see in some of these riparian areas is this healthy mix of those two types of vegetations. Uh, A lot of times the sedges will do the job of colonizing and and beginning uh, the process of stabilizing the soil, but some of these grasses like eastern gamma grass or sawgrass, switchgrass, these are things that we we call stabilizers. So they're these plants that actually will persist and hold on and stay there for a long time and develop these uh, really long, dense root systems that that hold the soil column together. And and so, but these are grasses that are tall. They're not... Because I think a lot of people, when we talk about grasses, think of grass as something you mow and it's 
you know, pretty short when you sure. walk on it. Yeah, a lot of these are, well, there's different mixes. Um, uh, there, there are certainly native grasses that uh, will be a little uh, shorter, mm-hmm. uh, and there's ones that can get uh, larger and bushier. Um, and so, you know, what we tell people is, you know, you can plant some of these shorter native turf type grasses, you know, your buffalo grasses, your mixes that might tolerate mowing on a, you know, a semi-annual basis where you can cut them down to below eight inches and have as the area where you use and access the river. But those areas where you don't necessarily want to get right into the river right there, you can allow some of these bigger grasses to grow that don't necessarily uh, need any maintenance whatsoever. So they'll save you some time and in energy and maintenance uh, costs and and effort, uh, so things like the switchgrass and the eastern gamma grass will get a little bit uh, bigger and bushier. But um, those play, uh, you know, having those larger grasses that plays that role of folding over and uh, protecting the ground from the top down, um, like we talked about a little bit earlier. How do you convince people? Because uh, a lot of people still uh, want to, well, what you just talked about, which is you know they want access to the to the water and to do that they feel they need a flat open area that so they can get down and uh, and access the water um, so how do you convince people that that may not necessarily well isn't necessarily the best way to manage the land in terms of uh, flooding sure well I try to take the mindset of when I'm engaging with a landowner or a land manager I'm not trying to convince them of anything I'm trying to learn from them about what they use their land for And once I have an understanding of what they use the land for, what they appreciate out of the land, then I try to tell them about the things that I know about how creeks and rivers function and some of the ecological value. And then I try to find some place in the middle where I can meet them where they're where they're at and maybe nudge them a little bit, uh, you know, further in in the direction of providing a diversity of vegetation that's better for, uh, you know, for for the critters in the river and that are more resilient to the effects of flooding. So what I'll tell people is, okay, if if you are a riverside or a creekside landowner and you've got 100 feet, you know, take an area that's, uh, you know, do you use all that? What's an area that you get in? Well, let, let's start, let, then maintain that the way you always have. What's an area you don't get in uh, always where you access it? You know, start with maybe just a five-foot buffer of, of not mowing that. And even that five feet begins to uh, start providing some of these functions. It'll provide some of that stabilizing function, provide some water quality function because it filters off the runoff and, and pollution. But the wider you go, if you're willing to dedicate 10 feet or 20 feet width, uh, the more functions that you start to provide, you start to get these ecological functions, these wildlife functions, you know, things that you're actually providing more material and cover for animals to utilize and feed off of. Uh, so the wider the buffer, the more functions. But I tell people, start with as much of a buffer as you're, as you're comfortable with. Uh, and over the course of time, just observe and, and see what the benefits are to you. And, you know, go wider if you want, go smaller if you want. Um, but uh, just in, in encouraging people to to start with whatever they're comfortable with. I guess what is the most important advice that you can give to people who live along rivers and streams about caring for those types of places? I I think sometimes we feel compelled uh, to get out there and uh, and, move stuff around and and, and really try to to fit the landscape to our um, preconceived notions of, of what it should look like. Um, but you know, these are incredibly diverse, resilient landscapes, and, and they are have an incredible self-healing capacity. So uh, if you're undertaking a project where you're trying to restore something, sometimes the best, uh, the, the, the best advice is to just slow down and do nothing. 
Um, and again, that gives you more time to, yeah. to enjoy it. You're listening to Mothering Earth. My guest today is Ryan McGillicuddy, a conservation biologist with Texas Parks and Wildlife. Uh, And we're talking about caring for riparian areas, areas along rivers and streams. Um, But now, uh, you know, we've talked about what people living along the rivers or streams can uh, hopefully do to prevent flooding. But what are some of the things that people who don't live along the river, who live away from the river or stream can do because obviously that land is connected to the other land. So, um, you know, what, what can they do that might mitigate the effects of flooding? That's a great question because, you know, not everybody is afforded the opportunity to live along one of our creeks or rivers. But, you know, the water in our uh, creeks and rivers is, is a public resource. Uh, it's something that's shared and utilized by all, uh, and it is by statute. You know, uh, it, by by definition in our in our state law, a public resource. So it really is up to all of us to caretake um, at some level. And you know, like you said, these uh, these water bodies are not disconnected from the activities on the uplands. So there are definitely things you can do on the uplands um, to to help protect our shared natural resources. So that that goes for whether you are in an urban area and you can be more mindful about you know, the fertilizers that you use in, uh, or how you maintain your landscape uh, to allow water to, you know, maybe slow down and not run off so quickly, um, or becoming engaged in your civic government to, you know, work on uh, proactive watershed ordinances that dictate, you know, how that how much impervious cover can be built in certain areas, whatever scale you can. Uh, and then for some of our rural landowners, uh, really just uh, focusing on creating those water-catching landscapes instead of water-shedding landscapes. And that's not to say that you shouldn't utilize your land productively in ways that, you know, generations before you have. Uh, you know, some of our, our ranchers, farmers are our best stewards of the landscape. We just encourage them to manage in a way that creates water-holding capacity on the landscape and uh, slows water down. So, you know, just by creating a diversity of native plants, um and uh, you know native grasses, you can increase organic matter, uh, no tillage, you know the, those types of things, rotational grazing, uh, giving uh, certain pastures a period of rest. That all adds organic matter to the soil, prescribed burning, things like that. And if you add just one percent of organic matter to your soil, you are increasing the soil holding capacity of that landscape by twenty thousand gallons per acre, uh, depending on wow. you know the soil type. Uh, and where you are on the landscape. That's a commonly cited number. It can go up or down depending on your localized conditions. But uh, organic matter uh, on on top of the soil uh, adds an incredible water storage capacity to that landscape. That's good for your localized landscape because you're getting healthier plants, you're getting healthier uh, um, uh, forage for your livestock or for whatever your land use is. But it also slows that water down, allows it to infiltrate into our aquifers, uh, prevents it from running off so quickly. Uh, so, you know, our upland land managers are just as important to the health, vitality, uh, and, and functionality of our of our uh, streams and creeks and rivers as our streamside riparian landowners are. So it's all it's all connected. And so, so that's also something that just average gardeners can do, right? Absolutely. Is to yeah. increase the water holding capacity of the soil. And uh, one thing we didn't talk about was, uh, you know, you talked about slowing water down. Um, what are some of the physical sort of ways, aside from plants, that we can slow water down in a garden? 
or in a landscape. In a garden or landscape. So you meant, uh, you mentioned berms or swales at right. the uh, at the outset. That's one thing that you can do that's kind of taken from the concept of um, well, there's two areas. There's per- permaculture. Right. Uh, you know, advocates for a lot of these features, and in, in some cases where you have uh, some of these features on contour where. Um, you know, you'll have these berms and swales that allow water to slow down and infiltrate in. And, and some of these, you know, soil conservation practices go all the way back to, you know, the Soil Conservation Service and the Great Depression, just slowing water down, allowing it to infiltrate, using, uh, observing the contour of your landscape and using it to your advantage. And, uh, you know, you can do that as a land manager if you're clearing cedar brush as well. When you, when you clear it, lay that, br- don't just drag it off and burn it. Uh, maybe lay it on contour so that it slows water down, catches soil, uh, and allows it to become vegetated. Um, and you can do that in a un- more urbanized municipal setting by implementing uh, some of those same practices are uh, are done, but they're less agricultural and they're just known as low impact development, LID. Uh, and that's the idea of you know creating some of these um, berms and swale type features around parking lots. So when the water runs off, it doesn't just shoot into the municipal stormwater system. It hits maybe a, a, a little uh, living, uh, bio, biologically diverse uh, pond or swale, and then allows it to slow and infiltrate. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's there's features that you can do both you know at your home, at your farm, at your ranch, but then also at this municipal uh, uh, planning level as well. No matter where you live, you can build the water holding capacity of your soil by adding compost and other organic materials. It's better for your trees and plants and will help reduce flooding. Thanks so much for listening. Please tell people you know about this podcast so that they can listen and subscribe. Until next time, this is Salwa Khan signing off for Mothering Earth your source for sustainable living news.